there's a story I once heard about the great American composer Samuel Barber, uh, who wrote some of the most brilliant and sophisticated music of any of our American concert composers. And an interviewer once asked him, what's your MO when you compose? You know, what do you do? What do you think of? What's your system? And Barber's reply apparently was, when I'm composing, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, which kind of flies in the face of what a lot of people think that composers sit there with every bit of technical apparatus going through their mind in terms of the notes that they put down and the sonorities that they're envisioning and the forms that they're writing in. Uh, there is no one right way to do it. And uh, I could speak for other composers who have tried to put their thoughts down on paper of, of how they compose, but I thought in spite of the fact that I'm nowhere near the uh, strata of the great musical creators, that since I do compose, I was going to give you a few glimpses into my world as a composer, uh, excerpts from four different pieces that I've written, and how I arrived at certain musical decisions. As you will see, uh, the stimuli for these four examples were quite different from one another. Uh, but they are all of a piece in terms of how I have arrived at certain creative decisions. The first one I want to share with you has to do with a score that I wrote many years ago when I was still living in Los Angeles for a friend's production of William Shakespeare's Richard III. Uh, my friend David Schmaltz was a very, very busy theater director. We collaborated on several uh, productions, three of them plays by William Shakespeare. And when he did Richard, he said, Adam, I want you to go all out. I'm going to emphasize the violence and the bloodiness of this play. If you want to make it a bold, dissonant, crazy score, go ahead. So uh, I took him at his word and, and came up with a score, which while not over the top unlistenable, was certainly one of the bolder statements I'd made as a composer. And we were blessed in that production with an absolutely brilliant actor in the part of Richard III. His name was Michael Basileon. He had what I think one could legitimately call a rather rough visage. And because of that, he was always being cast as hitmen and thugs and assassins and lowlifes. Uh, you could probably, if you went through his filmography, you'd find him in things like Mission Impossible and The Mod Squad and Barnaby Jones, always playing nasty characters. Uh, but he came to audition for the role. He was the sweetest, gentlest man, very well read, very scholarly. And when he found out that he was going to get the part of Richard, he went all out and delivered a beautiful, beautiful performance. And I was a little bit in awe of him. I, I, I certainly didn't avoid him. There was nothing forbidding about him, but I, but I kind of kept my distance because he kind of seemed to exist in this shroud of inspired actorly, uh, uh, actorliness. Is that a word? It is now. And um, so I waited until the very end of my writing the score, I waited till the end to write the overture. David wanted a, a proper prologue for this production. And I'd been to virtually all the rehearsals and I'd watched Michael's performance grow as Richard. And there was one thing, 
Now, I didn't know if it was deliberate or if it was something unconscious that had just worked its way into his performance. But there was one thing he did physically that became a constant. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and show you what it is here. So uh, pardon me, the crazy camera moves, but what he did, as you know, Richard had a, a limp because one of his legs was maimed. And so whenever Michael would come up to somebody that was later going to become one of his victims, he had this way of shuffling like this. And he'd always end setting on that foot. But it was always the same rhythm. Da, da, ba, di, ba. And, and again, he was, you know, it, it's almost as if he was a musician. It, it was that accurate. Uh, and so that rhythm became the basis for the overture. Uh, you know, I, I, I wrote it in, in sort of low clusters in the beginning, but there was this very definite. And, and that rhythm permeated the overture. I used it many different times. And of course, at the end of the overture, it would fade out and he'd come on stage for that unbelievable monologue. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. So dress rehearsals went well, opening night went well. There was a big party opening night. And I finally was brave enough to go and talk to him. I said, Michael, thank you so much for this incredible performance. It's been such a privilege to get to know your work. And I said, I'm going to tell you a little secret, and I hope it doesn't make you self-conscious, uh, self but you actually were the basis for the overture. And he kind of looked at me. I said, you may not know it, but, and I demonstrated for him the very thing that he did uh, when he would walk up to a, a victim-to-be, and he kind of shook his head and he said, that explains it. I said, what? He said, every night during rehearsals, I would stand back there getting into character and they would play your overture. And I'd be thinking to myself, how did he know exactly what music I needed to hear to get into character? So Michael and I had inadvertently joined musically uh, and theatrically over that one little unconscious walk of his. I believe it was Zoltan Kodai who once said, no composer is too great to write music for children. In fact, he should be great enough to write music for children. Uh, well, again, though not a great composer, I once tried my hand at writing a children's piece. Uh, it is in fact, to date, still my, my favorite of all my musical creations. It was a setting for narrator and a small instrumental ensemble of The Fairy's Gift by Perrault, uh, a tale that um, is, uh, it, it, I, I've heard it referred to and seen it published under several, several different titles, The Fairies, um, The Enchanted, uh, I forget. Anyway, lots of different titles, but you may well know this story. Perrault is the same gentleman who wrote Sleeping Beauty. And essentially it has to do with uh, a young woman who lives very unhappily with her domineering, unpleasant mother and domineering, unpleasant sister, and she's always forced to do all the rotten jobs around the house. And one day when she's down by the well, this 
old beggar woman comes up and begs a, a drink of water and Rose, the, the heroine says, of course, and because she's so spontaneously kind, the old woman who it turns out is really a fairy in disguise says, I'm going to give you a gift. Every time you speak, flowers and jewels will fall from your lips. And this indeed happens. Um, and so the mother says, oh my gosh, I, I, I want to have two daughters who can give me lots of jewelry. So she makes her nasty daughter go down to the well and wait for the same beggar woman. Instead, up comes this very grand, uh, obviously very wealthy woman who also asks for a drink of water. And uh, the nasty sister says, why should I serve you? Get out of here. And well, it's the same fairy in a different disguise uh, who puts a curse on the nasty sister so that every time she speaks, uh, uh, toads and lizards and snakes will come out of her mouth. So fun story. Um, so uh, one, of a, one, one of the many things in a composer's arsenal of, of tricks is the way that we can use the same theme, but, but you know, morph it in different musical ways uh, so that it has a different meaning. Um, I don't know how many of you know the musical term inversion. It simply means that you take uh, a theme like happy birthday to you, and if it goes up a major second, you go down a major second. If it goes back down a major second, you go back up. If it goes up a fourth, you go down a fourth. So it's simply a mirror image of that theme. So the, the inversion of this is this. This is the inversion of happy birthday to you. Sounds rather grim that way, but that's how it comes out. So um, I applied this same principle uh, when writing the music for uh, the two different appearances by the same fairy. Uh, when she first reveals herself as the fairy to Rose after having appeared as the old beggar woman, um, I wrote this sort of a, a lyrical allegretto in 6-8 time and it came out like this. When she comes back later as the very grand dame, uh, it's almost a, a sort of a, a countryish dance. It came out like this. Well, guess what? It's the same theme but inverted. It was my way of saying it's the same being, but disguised musically and in terms of her outward appearance. I mentioned that uh, the stimuli that act upon a composer are many and varied. And this is a really crazy one, but, but I, I think that the source befits the piece I was writing. Um, the last piece that I wrote for uh, a very large orchestra was a commission from the Seattle Philharmonic. They asked me to write a piece for a concert we were doing that fell just a few days shy of Halloween. And so they said, the only stipulation is it should have some kind of a Halloween connection. Other than that, you're on your own. 
Well, I've been a lifelong devotee of the writings of Edgar Allan Poe. And I went back to some of his poetry and I found an early poem of his called Spirits of the Dead. Absolutely magnificent poem about, you know, sort of someone imagining what it's going to be like to be a spirit amongst dead spirits. And um, I wrote it for a narrator who recites the poem, and I wrote it for an orchestra only of instruments that could be muted, so that they, they would have to produce this very constricted sound, strings, brass, and some percussion instruments, all of which could play either by damping the drum head or by hitting the mallet instruments in such a way that you didn't release the mallets. So instead of getting a boom, you get a boom, boom. And then there's this one horrific moment toward the middle of the piece where the realization of being amongst dead spirits hits home and suddenly all the instruments take the mutes off and the, co the, the, the color is blazingly horrific and then they all put their mutes on and it subsides again as if into the grave. And there was one place where I was trying to evoke what it would be like to be moving amongst these sort of zoned out, almost zombie-ish spirits. And I very deliberately thought, you know, what, what, what could inspire me here? What is the sound I want? And in addition to being a devotee of Edgar Allan Poe, I'm also a lifelong lover of horror movies. And, uh, you know, not only the classics, but you know, some of the grade B and worse ones, which can be so much fun to watch. Uh, any Ed Wood fans out there? And there was one of which I was very fond. It's not a great film, but uh, it, it's certainly worth watching. Vincent Price made a film once called The Last Man on Earth in which he plays a man who is seemingly the only person in the world who has an immunity to a virus which has spread worldwide, which turns all of its victims into vampires. And they know that he's holed up in his house, which he has boarded up and all that, but they come night after night, beating on his door, Morgan! Can you hear me, Morgan? Come out. And, and they're all intoning in this way. And so I deliberately came up with this melody, the series of melodies, which is imitated by different brass instruments, which I wanted to be toneless, shapeless, musically meandering. And it sort of came out like, I mean, it, it, it doesn't exist in any key. It, it's just sort of like, like gray. And that just seemed to be the musical embodiment of, of these dead souls in their toneless voices. Uh, it's a lot of fun to write. I pride myself on being a pacifist, a humanitarian, I try to treat my fellow creatures in a fair and understanding and compassionate way. So I'm a little embarrassed to tell you this last story, which 
is plainly a story about revenge and how revenge actually motivated one of my compositions or a facet of one of my compositions. Uh, when I moved to um, Seattle back in 1992, I cast out a few nets and let it be known that I loved writing for the theater and was approached not long thereafter by ACT uh, downtown in Seattle, a contemporary theater. Uh, and they asked me to write a score for their forthcoming production. It was a, um, a stage version of Stendhal's The Red and the Black. And that led to an ongoing association with ACT for whom I've now composed six or seven scores over the years. Uh, the most lasting one turned out to be the score that I wrote for their yearly production of Christmas Carol. Uh, when I moved to Seattle, they had digs in uh, one part of Queen Anne, uh, but then they moved to downtown. And in order to uh, make a splashy debut with their Christmas Carol production in their new venue, uh, they commissioned a whole new score from me, which I'm proud to say they've used every year thereafter since 1990. What year was that? It was 1990, 1996. And um, so I met with the director of that year's production and uh, it was like spotting a movie. We went through the script and she told me where she foresaw music being used both as underscoring and to bridge scenes. And there were a couple of vocal numbers. And I told her, well, I saw using a little music here. We, we jockeyed for a position and, and agreed on the 30 or so places where the play would have music. Um, there's one scene, um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the story, when uh, Scrooge is being shown episodes from his past by the ghost of Christmas past, uh, one of the scenes that he sees is himself as a young clerk, or clerk, I guess you would say, employed by Fezziwig. And there's a yearly Christmas party there. And the director said, I wanna have three dances in this scene. One, a fairly up-tempo general dance. Two, a slow romantic dance for Scrooge and his fiance, Belle. And then she said, I want a real barn burning, rip snorting country dance where everybody dances and they fall down exhausted at the end. And somehow the prospect of writing this fast country dance really got me and got me so much that on the drive home from my meeting with the director, I actually wrote the thing in my head and I got back home and I ran to my piano and I played it to make sure that I remembered it. I hastily wrote it down. And uh, so I started sketching the Christmas Carol score. Um, but when, uh, when she and I had our next meeting so I could play my various sketches and I got the go ahead, the very first thing that I orchestrated uh, was that country dance because I want to make sure that, you know, come what may, that this thing would be sure to get recorded. I wanted it down on paper. And I was asked to make a recording of myself playing the three dances at the piano so that the gentleman who was choreographing the dance scene uh, would have something to work with and, and could pass his choreography along to the dancer. So one day I was sitting at home and my phone rang. It was the choreographer. And he said, um, he said, well, in regards to these dances, the first two are fine, but this third one, I simply can't use it. What? He said, no, the feeling's all wrong, the tempo's all wrong. I simply can't, you have to write another one. You know, that, that's like 
telling a proud parent that their child is ugly, you know? I, I said, but, 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 he said, no, he said, I cannot use it. So I took my metronome and I said, all right, I'm going to turn on my metronome. You tell me when it's the right tempo. And he wanted this tempo, which is about 120. I said, all right, I will write you a new dance. And so I wrote him a new dance, uh, which went something like this. It doesn't translate that well to the keyboard, but it's like. recorded it and sent him the tape and he said that's fine absolutely fine I'll, I'll use it well there were two things I didn't tell him one of them was that um, as, as many of you know I love the music of Rafe Vaughan Williams the British composer and in collecting uh, as many of his uh, scores as I could that were in print. One of the books that I got, he, uh, although he was a professed uh, atheist slash agnostic, he loved British church music and took a couple of years out of his life and totally re-edited the English hymnal. And, uh, you know, out of respect for this treasure trove of music. And I got a copy of the English hymnal. And I love playing through these hymns. And frequently I would use the hymnal as source material. Uh, there are even some hymns in there that go back as far as Shakespeare's time, and I would sometimes incorporate them, say, into a Shakespeare score to make it that much more authentic. Well, I figured, you know, Christmas Carol, Scrooge, Charles Dickens, what could be more natural? So that dance is actually rooted in one of these hymns that I found. Um, the two things I didn't tell the gentleman in question were, one, that it's not supposed to be fast, it's actually quite a slow hymn. Now, so let's try that again. Et cetera, et cetera. The other thing I conveniently forgot to tell him is that that is a hymn that is sung at graveside when somebody's being buried. It was my way of telling him, drop dead. <laughs>